0: Hi, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to this hour-long presentation titled, The Use of IPA in Qualitative Data Analysis. Uh, My name is Anil Pahal, and I've been doing a lot of work in the qualitative realm uh, and uh, find IPA to be a very novel turnkey and a very structured approach to doing data analysis, specifically in the qualitative realm. So uh, what I hope to achieve today is to provide you with a general overview with a greater emphasis on how to deploy the approach. Uh, Because a lot of students sit through classes and learn the theoretical underpinnings, the framework of IPA, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, what they're really not taught is how to put together all the pieces of IPA in a coherent whole. Uh, as in how to use the turnkey process from data collection to data analysis to the final writing of a phenomenological study. So what I'm gonna do is try to give you a general overview uh, with the hope to get your feet wet. And if you already have been doing IPA, it's to give you a framework uh, to go deeper into the approach and hopefully cover some of the items that have been grey areas for you. So let's get started uh, and welcome again. Let me go to the first slide. What is IPA? IPA is an acronym for Interpretative Phenomenological Analysis. Now in the UK, uh, the word is interpretative as it is used by the authors. But in the US uh, and some of the countries, we use the word interpretive. Uh, both basically they're uh, uh, analogous, they they, they mean the same thing. And uh, so when I say IPA, I mean interpretive phenomenological analysis or interpretive phenomenological analysis, whatever works for you. It is not a methodology per se. A lot of folks ask me, is IPA a methodology? As in action research, uh, narrative research, Uh, case study method, ethnography, ethno-methodology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And my uh, response is that do not think of IPA as a distinct methodology as such, but it is a turnkey approach to conducting qualitative data, data analysis, especially when you are dealing with phenomenological data or if your focus Of research is phenomenological. So IPA, uh, as you will see later in this presentation, is is an approach that is used mostly in phenomenological studies. It was developed by Dr. Jonathan Smith and a team of health psychologists at the University of Birkbeck, UK. Um, It is an in-depth approach to analyzing data and streams of consciousness in phenomenological studies. Um, Okay, so uh, with that, let me go to the next slide. Uh, What is the focus of this presentation? So uh, because it's such a vast area and phenomenology itself is uh, more thought of as a philosophy of research as opposed to a methodology of research so think of phenomenology as a philosophy of research and within phenomenology there are a number of different streams i'm not going to be able to cover a lot of that in this uh, in this presentation so what i want to do is provide you with an overview of the theoretical underpinnings and pillars of ipa and when it should be deployed so um, it's important before you dive into this approach to be able to understand what is a theoretical framework what are the pillars on which interpretative phenomenological analysis or ipa rests because if we do not understand those three pillars which are critical which are pivotal to this approach you're not going to be able to successfully collect data analyze data and write the phenomenological study Uh, I want to also outline some dissertation topics if I have some time and the kinds of novel research questions that IPA undertakes or novel research phenomena that IPA undertakes. We'll also try to craft phenomenological research questions. I'm going to show you a matrix chart in which I will show you uh, the distinction between uh, the different types of questions that we ask in phenomenology. Uh, I'm going to try to distinguish between whatness and thatness as they relate to research phenomena. Um, so at this point in time, don't get confused. It can be um, uh, you know the jargon is actually translated from the German. Um, so I'm not. I'm going to keep it in English. Uh, especially for the novice researchers who have not really had a deep dive into the Germanic uh, constructs and Germanic theories uh, around uh, around phenomenology. So let's go to the next one. Um, very early in this presentation, I want to talk to you about research questions. Now I find in uh, all my work, and I've done about, 25, maybe 26 in-depth workshops in phenomenology and qualitative research methods and application over the last three years. And uh, my experiences have shown me that students are often confused uh, around how to craft a research question. What does the research question um, do in the study, i.e. what is the purpose of a research question in the study? Uh, What are the research phenomena? So they hear about the research question, they hear about the research phenomena, they hear about the title of the study or the title of your dissertation, and what approach or methodology is best suited to answer that research question. So it's important to understand that crafting a good research question will finally determine the direction that your study is going to go in. So you may have a research question that can be successfully addressed by action research uh, and not necessarily by phenomenology. So what is it about a phenomenological research question uh, that lends itself for the use of IPA? Um, So let's look at the first column, which is sample research question. Uh, And the question uh, uh, that I've framed here, just a simple one, what does engagement mean to employees? What does engagement mean to employees? Uh, And if you look at the features of this question, you will see that my focus in this question is on engagement as an indirect employee experience. What do I mean by that? So here, I, as you can see, the phenomena that I'm referring to is engagement or employee engagement. But I'm asking a question which is more generic. Okay. So it is a question that can be broadly answered. So let me give you an example. When we talk about sexual abuse or we talk about um, aggression or we talk about emotional assault Uh, and if i ask someone to reflect on that anybody and everybody pretty much can say something about emotional abuse or emotional aggression or or you know physical assault etc etc uh, so they can generically talk about that. Or if I ask someone about, tell me about anger or love or kindness or compassion, they can all talk about it in a very broad, indirect framework. So they can reflect on that, on the phenomena, And tell me about engagement as they think of engagement within the context of that they're embedded in. All right. So they can very uh, generically discuss engagement with me. Um, and the approach, or the methodology that you're likely going to be used using for that kind of question or to answer that kind of question, is phenomenology. Uh, why? Because we are trying to understand the essence of a phenomenon. And what is the research phenomenon? The research phenomenon is employee engagement. So when I ask um, the question, what does engagement mean to employees? I would necessarily be talking to a number of employees in different organizations asking about employee engagement. So even though they work in organizations that employed within the organization, I'm not necessarily focusing on the context in which they are embedded, okay? What type of organization, what kind of work they do, are they on a team, uh, are they managers, are they supervisors? I just broadly want to understand employee engagement. So this is a very indirect way of approaching a phenomenological research question. And we could use a variety of phenomenological methods. You can use descriptive phenomenology, Medio-Gorgi. Uh, you can use uh, transcendental phenomenology. Uh, a lot of uh, folks that have been um, doing qualitative studies will have heard of transcendental phenomenology. Transcendental phenomenology is um, something that we attribute to Husserl or Husserl. Uh, Husserl, as you know, was a German philosopher, and he's known to be the father of phenomenology. So just just stay with that for now. And if you look at the last column, uh, which is whatness direct or thatness indirect. So what we're asking is, what does this question really direct your mind to? Is that the, is, are we focusing on the thatness of an experience, as if the experience, even though you're having that experience, that experience sits outside of you. It is, you're surrounded by that experience, but not necessarily something that you may have interjected. All right. Now, let's go to the next question What is it like for employees to experience engagement in a virtual team? Now, if you notice the focus of this question, I'm asking employees to reflect on their lived experience of engagement in a virtual team. If you see the difference between the first question and the second question, do you see that in the second question, I've added a context? And what is that context? That context. Is the virtual team or a virtual organization? So I'm asking the question what is it like for employees to experience engagement in a virtual team? And when I go out recruiting participants for this, it would have to be a purposive sample, would it not, of folks that are employed by organizations, but I'm specifically focusing on their experience of engagement in a virtual team. So the context being the virtual team, and my focus, if you go to the second column, my focus is on the personal meaning of engagement. So what does engagement mean to the participant who's part of an organization and working on a virtual team? So I'm looking for the direct lived experience of that individual in The context of virtuality. So, now as you will notice, the framework for this kind of work is going to be around people who are employed by an organization, but folks that are working on a virtual team or working in a virtual team. So, when I go out recruiting people, or participants, as we call them, for this study, I would necessarily be looking for folks that have had that kind of experience, would I not? So when I go for a purposive sample, i.e. a sample with a purpose, I'm specifically looking for people who can give me an account of their direct experience. See, IPA is all about experience. And, and so is general phenomenology. It's about experience because we're trying to understand the essence of an experience. We're trying to understand the essence of a phenomena. So let's go to the research phenomena um, column. You'll see that again, the phenomena that we're researching the here is employee engagement and so was it in the first one so even though the phenomena the research phenomena was the same they were both similar you notice that my question in the first instance is different from my question in the second instance so how you craft a question and the kind of question a phenomenological research question that you craft will determine what kind of features you're looking for in the study and which in turn will determine the methodology or the approach that you're going to be using for your study all right and the approach that we are going to be doing is on the look at the fourth column it's ipa because ipa concerns itself with the personal meaning and uh the the specific in a specific context so ipa is about understanding it's about a sense making process through a individual's lived experience and if you notice in the last column we are now referring to whatness in the first in the in the, uh, the question above we were looking at thatness of experience now we are looking at whatness of experience what do i mean by whatness of experience what is it like for employees to experience engagement? So go to the first column and see where I say, what is it like for employees to experience engagement in a virtual team or a virtual setting? Um, It's an ontological question because ontology concerns itself with the nature of being. So when I ask a question, what is it like for you to be, I'm specifically talking about an IPA approach, because in an IPA approach, we are looking for an individual's direct lived experience. What does the experience, What has that individual? What has that participant experienced when it comes to engagement? Or what has that individual experienced about engagement, having worked in a virtual team setting? Okay, so uh, let me proceed to the next slide. What are the focus of IPA? It's an ontological nature of being, as in what is it like to be gay? Or how does one make sense of chronic lower back pain? Or perhaps what is it like for unwed mothers to raise children in a single parent household? So these are just some sample questions for you to think about ontologically. Because again, in all these questions, I'm asking for a, for a personal account from the participant around whatever the phenomena is. So when I ask, what is it like to be gay, right? I'm talking about, I may be referring to somebody who's from the LGBTQ community um, because those are the folks that would likely have had the direct experience. So when I'm asking them, what is it like to be gay? um i may add the context on that uh or add some other frameworks such as what is it like to be marginalized in the lgbt community or how does one make sense of chronic lower back pain a lot of work around ipa um uh, was done by health psychologists uh, and jonathan smith larkins and flowers who were the ones that initially developed the uh, the IPA approach uh, were all health psychologists in UK. And so a lot of work has been done on understanding uh, uh, and using IPA for, uh, for health research. Or perhaps, what is it like for unwed mothers to raise children in a single parent household? So when I'm asking this kind of question, my participants would necessarily be unwed mothers who are raising children in a single parent household. Okay, uh, I hope I'm hope i clear on that. So when I'm asking these folks to reflect on and talk about their experiences, I'm talking about talking to someone who has actually had that experience. So I'm not asking just anybody to reflect on what is it like so I can ask someone on the street, hey, by the way, let me know uh, what do you think about unwed mothers raising children in a single parent household? Now we can all reflect on that because through our own experiences, from media, our readings and whatnot, we can all say something about that. But what I'm, in IPA, that's not what I'm after. In IPA, what I'm after is a direct lived experience. And who has a direct lived experience? It is the person that has actually gone through that experience and can talk about that experience um, with some authority, um, with some richness and with some novelty. IPA is about meaning making and sense making. So when we talk about meaning making and sense making, uh, we're really looking at IPA as an interpretative process. um, And interpretation is about making meaning of something or making sense of something, is it not? As you're uh, interpreting something, you are necessarily trying to make sense of something or trying to give meaning to something in your mind. And just please know that IPA is about experiences that are close and very, very personal. We're not talking about general experiences. We are talking about a lot of emotions in these experiences. So we go to the next bullet point, IPA analyzes thick data, discursive accounts, evocative descriptions and pathos-laden stories. So when I say thick, thick is very emotional. It's deep, it's rich. Um, and, and, And when we talk about emotions, it's not just any surface emotion. Oh, I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling happy, or I'm feeling mad. Yes, those are emotions, but the purpose of using IPA or deploying IPA is to go down deep into the pathos. So you've all heard of um, ethos, pathos, and logos. Ethos is the ethics, pathos is the emotions, and logos is the logic, right? So here we're talking about pathos-laden, we're looking for emotionally laden stories. We're, looking, we're not looking to just scratch the surface. IPA is an in-depth approach. It's a deep dive you're taking into the data. And you're, you're, if you're kind of like an excavator who's taking a very, very deep dive, you're trying, trying to look for gold way down below, it's not on the surface. So you really have to dig deep. And in order to dig deep, you have to draw the participant into into telling you or narrating to you uh, their emotions, their feelings, their perceptions and, and their thoughts around the phenomena. And it's a hard job. Let me, let me tell you, uh, IPA uh, and the, and using phenomenology is just not for everybody. It's not for the faint-hearted uh, it, because it can open up a, a lot of stuff during the interview process that you probably had never expected. All right, so be prepared for that. IPA does not attempt to hypothesize, validate, refute, define, taxonomize, or theorize. So please, I know that in research, the first thing that jumps into your mind is, what are the theories? What's my literature review uh, going to include? What are the theoretical frameworks around which this is done? So your mind rushes to attach a theory to something. Forget about that in IPA and forget about that in phenomenology. Phenomenology is not about theorizing, okay? It, it is not about setting up a hypothesis uh, when you think that, when you really have a hunch that this may be what is happening. So it's a hypothesis and you want to go ahead and try to prove or disprove that hypothesis as you would in quantitative analysis or quantitative studies. Your goal is simply to remain as objective as possible uh, in in doing the, the, the data collection and doing the analysis, but at the same time, be able to relate to someone's emotions, someone's feelings, someone's thoughts, okay? Uh, at a very deep level. So IPA, again, is not about validation. You're not trying to validate something. You're not trying to refute something. You're not trying to describe, define a research phenomenon. You're not trying to taxonomize as in give order to something. And lastly, you're not theorizing. So please remember that when you're doing IPA, you have to stay clear of this or you would get into Trouble. You are not going to be able to successfully conduct that study. So let me move on to the next slide. Why pursue IP? A lot of folks ask me, uh, uh, Dr. Bell, why is it that I should pursue IP? Why not transcendental method, uh, phenomenology? Uh, why not descriptive phenomenology? Why not use other approaches to answer a phenomenological research question? You certainly can nobody's stopping you from doing that. Um, What I realized, and I did my um, uh, dissertation uh, many years ago, and uh, I still distinctly remember my struggle. uh, the, The moment I set up a research question, I was trying to research what is it like for leaders to be in a state of negative capability during periods of conflict and and unrest in the organization. So clearly it was a phenomenological research question, but I could have also answered that question using some other approach, um, other research approach or a research methodology. I chose phenomenology because I was really not too concerned about drawing or building or developing a theory around that. I wanted to go deep down and understand the essence of the negative capability phenomenon. By the way, for those that are not familiar with negative capability, it was an expression that was coined by the famous English romantic poet, John Keats in 1817, and it refers to the human capacity to stay in mysteries, doubts, uncertainty and ambiguity without the irritable reaching after fact and reason. So it was a um, dialectical tension that I was trying to understand. So I was trying to understand not why it occurs or what people do when they're in that frame of mind, But what I wanted to really understand was the essence. What meaning structures do they attach to that? What are their experiences of negative capability? So anyway, uh, moving on, the researcher is trying to make sense of the experience as it is narrated narrated to her by participants. So when you're recruiting participants for an IPS study, you're looking for folks that can talk about that experience very, very close to their hearts and, and, and give, you, give it the richness and novelty that you're really looking for. The objective is not to validate or invalidate that experience. A lot of times, I, you know, I will get that question. Um, sir, I was trying to interview somebody and, you know, clearly what that person was, was telling me was totally untrue. Okay, it was totally false. Now, well, on one hand, you might think that, hey, if I can get a feel right away in the interview that the person is not telling me the truth, do I need to go ahead, all right, with the interview? Or do I cut the interview short and excuse myself and out respectfully end the interview and look for some other participant? or? Do I continue with that and use prompts and use other methods of interviewing in order to uncover possibly, and not to prove the participant right or wrong. That is not what you are about. That is not what you're gonna be doing. You're not validating or invalidating that experience. But in staying with that individual, you're trying to get to the essence of their experience and perhaps in your mind, you may be able to throw some light on what was it that occurred in the past, in the past five years or six years or 10 years or 12 years that this person is narrated to you, that this person wants to maybe fabricate an experience. So you're not gonna have too many of these, and hey, hey, and if you're having too many of these folks who are overtly lying to you about the experience, um, you certainly don't want to have, have them in the study. But if you just find a one person is doing it um, and, and you feel that it's blatantly, it's obvious to you that this person is not telling you the truth, just keep on with the interview, collect the data, and you could deal with the data in the data analysis part because let me go later in this presentation, I'll talk about something that will help you, a tool that will help you to understand and to record that experience and make sense of that experience yourself, okay? And we call that reflexivity. reflexivity. So it, it is not your role in this interview to call into question the facticity of the experience, the facts. You're not after the facts, okay? You're certainly after understanding the essence, the thoughts, feelings, and emotions, but you're already really not after the facts. It is a retrospective past recollection of the experience as shared by a study participant on her own terms, in her own words. Um, what is a retrospective recollection? Retrospective means past. In IPA and phenomenological studies, you're not asking a person to reflect on what is happening in the here and now, what is happening in the present. When you're doing these research studies, you are taking a person back into time and having them reflect on certain experiences that they may have had two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. The experience is already embedded in their mind But a lot of times with the passage of time, the experience sort of fades. So your role as a researcher is to be able to catalyze some recollection in the minds of the participants such that they are able to stop the fire in a manner of speaking and be able to to share with you the experiences as they can recollect them. All right, and and this is where the techniques involved in interviewing uh, are very very critical, and what the kind of questions you ask them, um, and and when to move in and when to back off, um, is a critical skill in uh, in phenomenological research uh, interviewing. All right. So now uh, you're asking them to share certain experiences on their own terms, in their own words. Friends, one of the jobs of a qualitative researcher and especially when you're doing IPA, (coughs) excuse me, is to not put words in the participant's mouth. Your role is to be an objective person to the extent possible but you're not a hands-off observer as you would be if you were doing quantitative research. In quantitative research and positivist science, the um, researcher does not want to corrupt the data, so the researcher takes a totally hands-off approach. You are not taking a totally hands-off approach in this. You're, in a manner of speaking, co-creating this study. Co-creating this knowledge, co-creating the interpretations, but the skill lies in being present and yet not intrusive. So you have to allow 70 to 80% of the total interview time to the participant because this research is about them. It is not about you, even though you are co-creating the process with them it is not about you, just remember. And at the end of the day, it is about the research phenomena. Everything that you're doing in IPA or in any study is around the research phenomena. So you're trying to shed light on the research phenomena. The theoretical underpinnings of IPA. First, phenomenology. It is understanding the essence of a phenomena from the first person point of view. So, you know, this thing often comes up um, in in my workshops. Sir, why is it that your um, study, your doctoral study, why is it that it uses the first person? In other words, you know, why is it that you're saying, I did this and I did that and I recruited participants and I experienced this or I found this. Why not? The researcher did this. The researcher recruited the participants. The researcher set this out. Why not? Why why use the the first person as opposed to the third person? Well, just remember phenomenological studies and also other qualitative. qualitative methodologies the reader wants to know what is it that you did they're not thinking about the third person they're thinking about you because they're looking for your narrative in your own words using an active voice you're using an active voice versus using a rather passive voice when you're doing quantitative studies right so it is also about intentionality ie your work is directed towards something something very specific okay and uh, it is outside the scope of this presentation to talk about the major theorists in phenomenology but just there, just know that they're Husserl, uh, heidegger Sartre, and schutz or alfred schutz okay Uh, You're certainly welcome to dig into your library and look for material by them. And at the end of the presentation, I'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the rudimentary texts that you can uh, try to obtain, which will be very helpful in your studies. The second pillar, and by the way, the theoretical underpinnings, first one is phenomenology. Think of it as the first pillar of the stool or first leg of the stool. The second leg of the stool is hermeneutics. What is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is the interpretation of text, be it in written, verbal or non-verbal form. Again, some philosophers, Gadamer, Ricord, Delphi, are very, very much, uh, they have to do with the hermeneutics. Uh, Ideography is the third pillar. What is ideography? Understanding an individual's retrospective account on their own terms in their own words every individual is a separate entity when we are looking at phenomenological research and especially IPA you're looking for the direct lived experience of every individual participant retrospectively so in other words they're telling you about the past experiences on their own terms All right, you're not setting the stage for them. You're not guiding, you're not steering them in a certain direction. It is in their own words, on their own terms. You are just faithfully recording uh, or writing down notes of whatever the individual is saying. And if the person steers away from the interview schedule, you can gently bring them back uh, but you have to allow them the freedom to express and the safety to express what is lying buried probably for years and years and years in the recesses of their mind. Sometimes it's coming out even through their unconscious mind. So, how is IPA different from other methods? IPA is a step-by-step turnkey process for sorting through and analyzing qualitative data using techniques of phenomenological reduction um uh recently I came across somebody who was running into some problems about uh, that had to do with um, you know understanding themes and understanding how to cluster themes and she was doing grounded theory um and and she wanted to know how I could be of some help and uh, I was a bit nonplussed because i did not uh, i I wasn't involved in a on her committee, so I did not know what it ex- exactly had transpired, other than from what she, she had shared with me uh, through the research proposal, etc. And so I, I shared with her the IPA turnkey process and I asked her to go through that um, and to see, you know, because there are some commonalities between phenomenological um, um, interviewing and data collection. Uh, you know, uh, the coding, etc., cetera, um, and what you do in, in grounded theory. So I I said, if you could use the turnkey process uh, that IPA uses, which I'll share with you in a bit, uh, it may be of some help to you. So I don't know, I haven't heard back from her, but she did uh, write that, that a, a, she seems to think that it may be very helpful for her. And IP is especially useful for novice researchers. Now let me let me I'll help you understand that. The problem with phenomenology is it's a very convoluted approach, okay? It's a very convoluted philosophy. You know, you have 30, 40 different phenomenologists, classical phenomenologists, contemporary phenomenologists on a variety of things, okay? transcendental phenomenology ontological phenomenology deconstruction phenomenology feminist phenomenology you name it and there's a researcher or there's a, um, a theoretician that has done that work on that so how does a novice researcher first entering phenomenology go about a you know a collecting data which is relatively simpler okay because you could have a good interview technique and collect really rich voluminous data evocative descriptions but how do you then go about deconstructing unpacking everything my goodness so if you've done like 10 or 15 interviews you will have looked at probably about 350 to 400 pages of transcripts so when you look at this volume of of data you can be totally shocked. you 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 may find it really difficult to make sense of this data so how do you look at such a huge voluminous uh data set and try to bring some meaning through that so uh the ideographic focus on how an individual in a specific context makes sense of a specific phenomenon is for that reason we help you with an ipa to actually go through each and every interview, transcribe it separately, analyze the interviews separately, write about it separately, cluster themes, look for superordinate and subordinate themes, etc., and then roll up everything to make it more easily digestible and make it more comprehensible and, 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 and meaningful to the person that's reading your study. Uh, A a concept that I'd like to talk to you about is double and triple hermeneutic. In IPS studies, um, you as the researcher are making sense of the participant who is in turn making sense of a phenomenon. Because when you're asking them questions, you're asking them to reflect on something you're trying to get the pre-reflective understanding. Uh, and, I, and I don't have the time to go through the pre-reflective and pre-theoretical understanding, but I'm gonna do my best to help you understand. So, so what is a pre-reflective understanding? So when I'm asking you to reflect on something that you may have experienced 10 years ago or 15 years ago, you might say to me, but I already have some reflections on that experience. So that experience is no longer something that I'm newly reflecting on. Well, one school of thought would be yes, the experience is there, you've already reflected on it. But have you really reflected on that experience in the way that I'm asking you to reflect on it in this study? Maybe not. Maybe you thought of that experience and, and that has stayed in your memory banks and you recall that experience, good or bad, and you make some sense of that experience, but you don't give a lot of time, attention, or energy to that experience because it's lying buried for you. When I come in, I'm trying to you know, excavate that material with you and try to make sense of that material. So in a way, the way you are narrating that experience is in line with its very first reflective nature. So in other words, now you're reflecting on that experience for the very first time. You're making sense of that past experience for the very first time because I'm engaging with you, and I'm asking you certain questions that you never perhaps asked yourself in that same way in the past, because you weren't involved in a study. You just had the experience and you forgot about it. I'm bringing that experience to the forefront. I'm bringing that experience center stage. So when I'm, as a participant, making an interpretation, I am thinking about you as the participant who is thinking about a phenomenon so i'm making sense of how you are making sense of the phenomena but now when your research study is ready there are going to be readers that will be making sense so the readers are then making sense of the researcher who is in turn making sense of the phenomena so look at the triple hermeneutic the reader is making sense of the participant or the reader i'm sorry the reader is making sense of the researcher the person who wrote the study who is making sense of the participant who is then in turn making sense of the phenomena the phenomena is way out there but it's being looked at through various lenses and and that's the beauty of this, it's the multiplicity of viewpoints. It's not just one, one notion of reality. It, there's no absolute reality. There are only shades of reality, shades of understanding and shades of interpretation. So we use the word triple hermeneutic and double hermeneutic to describe that. Interviewing and data collection. IPUs uses very small corpuses. As a matter of fact, don't be surprised if if when you're reading the IPA text, it talks about three or four interviews only. It's doable, but when you're doing a full length research study for your doctoral work, uh, your faculty may not allow you to just do four or five or three or four interviews. Uh, They may say more like, hey, do 10 or do 15 or do 20. Well, let me tell you this. Because it's an in-depth approach, don't become the author of your own misery. All right. You have to be able to respectfully rebut to your committee when they tell you to do 15 interviews without a good understanding of what IPA really is. You have to be able to say that IPA mandates, or not does mandate, IPA suggests that you do Small corpuses, then the reasoning for that is you're going through an in depth analysis conceptually, textually, and linguistically. You're looking at data and analyzing the data on many different levels. Therefore, it's important, it behooves you to have a smaller corpus. So go small, but go deep. Okay. So the emphasis is on the co-creation of understanding and interpretation with the researcher and participant both playing an active role in the semi-structured in-depth interview. So I talked about that a little bit uh, previously, but just remember you're co-creating this knowledge and understanding through the interview. But at the same time, as a researcher, you are not on stage to perform. You're on stage to guide and steer. and if it goes off tracks you've got to bring them back gently because what is your purpose your purpose is to get rich evocative data okay you're trying to go for their accounts their narrative and know, you're trying to make sense of that so the researcher assumes a hands-on paradoxically bilateral relationship with the participant so when i say that i mean the researcher is impacting the study, is he not, or is she not, and is also being impacted by the participants, because what the participants share with you triggers, catalyzes your own memories, your own ideas, your own thoughts, your own perceptions about the study phenomena, and so the skill as a researcher lies in creating the objectivity as to the extent possible, and. The, the paradoxically biological relationship means that you should know when to move in and when to back off, uh, and it's a, it's a process that goes back and forth. It's an iterative process, so you're asking them questions and you're engaging them in a conversation, um, and, and so, so so you're engaged with the participant and not standing outside of that interview. All right. Interpretation and sense making have already begun in the data collection phase of the IPA study. So as you're doing the study, um, or actually collecting data for the IPA study, you are in a sense already making sense. You're making some interpretation, you're drawing some meaning out of that. So if you're drawing meaning and you're, you're, so would it be okay for you to put a spin? Put a theoretical spin say, hey, I know what that person is trying to tell me because I have a theoretical framework around that. This is what's happening. No, you have to steer away from that. And let me share with you what happens there. Um, IPA is an inductive approach. So you IPA deploys inductive reasoning. It proceeds from particular and specific to broader generalization. Don't think of it as quantitative studies. Quantitative studies are deductive for the most part. Okay. They go from, um, you know, general to general theories, grand theories to specific situations or specific research problems. Okay. Think of this as going from very particular, specific ideographic accounts of individual participants and then a roll-up of all that in the form of a group narrative from which you draw some broad ideas a generalization but it is not the kind of generalization that you might think of when you're referring to quantitative studies the general generalities that you're thinking about are not something that you can say at the end of the IPS study hey I discovered this through 14 interviews, and this can be a grand theory that I can apply to to this research phenomenon for all time. That is not what you're trying to do. Philosophically, inductive reasoning is more nuanced and uncertain. It does not attempt to prove, disprove, hypothesize, validate, or refute theories or hypotheses. A mouthful I know but uh, just understand that your goal, your objective in doing IPA is to bring out to the extent possible, the essence of the experience. Okay, uh, through their stories, to, to their meaning participant stories, participants narratives, participants understanding you're drawing an understanding you're drawing meaning from participants drawing understanding and meaning okay you're not putting forth a hypothesis you're not into theoretical spins uh you're not trying to prove something right or disprove something that is not your goal hermeneutics of description and suspicion while you're interviewing participants Uh, just know that researcher is an active participant who does not direct or otherwise intrude in the interview process i talked about that a little bit earlier the focus is on the participants account and narrative now that's the hermeneutics of description so you're looking for evocative descriptions evocative discursive evocative descriptions from the participants Life stories, um, their lived experiences, uh, but you're also at some level using a hermeneutics of suspicion. You're paying attention as a researcher to what lies beneath the surface of what that participant may be telling you. What is being said? What is not being said? What is being discussed? What is not being discussed? What is being held back potentially? by the participant. But you don't question why that is being held back. You don't ask the participant, hey, you're not telling me the entire truth. Tell me why you're not telling me the truth. Okay, you get the drift of that? All right. IP and bracketing, researchers assumptions, preconceived notions and paradigmatic lenses as they relate to the study phenomena are important factors. For the purpose of research and analysis, these are set aside and bracketed. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail on that. I'm sure if you're doing qualitative research, you are familiar with bracketing. Bracketing is just setting aside, putting in brackets, what would otherwise impede the research process. And the reason you do that is you want to stay as clear as possible of your own theoretical spins, own paradigmatic frameworks, own understanding, own interpretations for the purpose of the study. Because you want to allow something new to emerge. You want to allow the phenomena to show itself in its most primordial and originary forms. Primordial meanings way back, antique, ancient. And originally means original forms. So you're trying to go way back into the deep recesses of the person's mind in other you know in order for you you to be able to collect that kind of data while the researcher consciously brackets her biases and assumptions she allows her reflexivity to surface and makes careful notations about how she's impacting or being impacted by the study Researcher reflexivity is an important a very very important aspect of phenomenological studies the reader wants to know what your experience was, how you were affected by the experience. What did you do? What kind of impact did you have on the experience? You started off with some assumptions. Were you successful or were your assumptions proved wrong at the end of the, the, uh, the study? What truly happened? The, in a phenomenological study, these are all things that come into the picture, okay? And that's why it's such a novel approach and a very unique approach to studying phenomena, because the researcher reflexivity, the researcher's self plays, SELF, plays an important role in the study. So while the researcher is bracketing his or her own biases, notions, understanding, frameworks, et cetera, what the research is not doing is intruding on the process. Okay, so let me go to the next slide where we talk about interpretation and the analytic process. Now this is a fairly populated slide and I have divided this entire process into several stages, stage one, two, three, four, five and six. Um, In stage one, What you do is, and this is after you've collected the data, this is after you've collected all the interview, um, uh, you know, transcripts, you've done the transcripts, you've you've transcribed everything, Um, and now you're ready, you're looking at 365, 370 or 400 pages, and you don't know what to do, where to start and where to begin. So this process will help you understand the stages that you must go through while doing the analysis. Now this is a data analysis approach, okay? So let's look at stage one, which is identifying themes and recurring patterns in the very first transcript. So let's say you've got 10 transcripts, 10 interview transcripts. What would you do? You have to look at each transcript on its own terms religiously truthfully you have to not look at the entire corpus together because you'll get totally overwhelmed so look at every stage on its own terms so you would identify the themes and recurring patterns in the first transcript so you're looking at just the very first transcript okay don't get confused you're looking at the very very first transcript using the left hand margin of the transcript on that paper in the left hand margin you list all words phrases ideas and convergent patterns keeping the study phenomena in mind your entire study is to understand the essence of your research phenomena just please remember your research question is guiding this entire study the research question um sort of dictates what kind of study design you ought to have what kind of methodology you will use how do you go about collecting data how do you go about analyzing data this is all raw data so all the words phrases ideas convergent patterns and the the phrases that come to mind uh, as you're reading the transcript You will list them. This is all extracts from that transcript. You're listing them in the left hand corner, left hand margin. Let's go to stage two. Closely examine your own notations in the left margin of the first transcript and look for emergent themes and patterns using specific phrases that most closely capture the essence of your phenomena. So you're looking at all the words from stage one that are listed in the left-hand column. And now what you're trying to do is you're examining these words and looking for emergent themes and patterns because you could have listed in stage one, let's say from one interview or one transcript, say you listed about 40, 45 words in your left-hand column, not at all 45, are uh, words that are not repetitive. Not all 45 words are going directly and illuminating the research phenomena. So you have to look for those words that are most closely approximating your research phenomena. So in stage three, you take a separate piece of paper. Now, what you would do is like if you've got 10 interviews, you create 10 different sheets of paper. And on each piece of piece of sheet of paper, you write interview number one, two, three, four, five, six, so forth and so on. So take a separate piece of paper and title it interview number one. List the emergent themes. List the emergent themes and phrases from stage two without worrying too much about connections between each theme. So what you're doing is you're taking the emergent themes phrases from stage two, and you're trying to cluster them. You're trying to bring them closer together, looking for convergences and divergences, okay? Stage four, on the same paper, on the same sheet, that's transcript number one, begin clustering the themes for interview number one, making sure that you are avoiding redundancy and repetition. Each theme must accompany short, verbatim extracts from the actual interview transcript. So each sheet has to have the extracts. You're taking, you're going back into the transcript and taking extracts to support the theme. So let's say the theme says uh, difficulty withholding paradox. Now, just saying difficulty withholding, holding paradox is means nothing much to a reader. But when you add an excerpt from the transcript, which has to do with that topic of holding paradox, right? or the difficulty or challenge with the holding paradox. You are now saying to the reader that this is why you thought that theme was important from the standpoint of your research phenomena. You have to tie it into your research phenomena. Stage five, closely examine this paper and start distilling the themes and grouping them into superordinate, most important, and subordinate, less important, but nonetheless germane themes. So, what I was saying here, when you look at this paper, the separate sheet for uh, interview number one, right, you are now looking through, you add the words, the, all the 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 streams of consciousness words, uh, the buzzwords that came up, all the phrases, then you narrow down to emergent themes. So let's say you started with 40 words in um, stage one, you're down to now say 20, maybe 25, and then you're done, it's a winnowing process. So you're really distilling it and reducing this in order to try to understand the essence. So, when you start to distill the themes and group them into superordinate themes, you're looking for the themes that are most important. What do I mean by most important? The ones that are appearing again and again would be superordinate and that are most closely talking about the phenomena, your research phenomena. And then there are some other themes as well. That are also important, but nonetheless not as important as the superordinate themes. So, you would list them under subordinate themes. They are indirectly talking about the phenomena and they are not getting repeated as much as the superordinate themes are. You see what I'm saying? So, this is your first sheet of paper for the first interview. You would list at the end of stage five. Superordinate and subordinate themes. In stage six, use the steps outlined in stages one to five and repeat the entire process for all the remaining transcripts, carefully noting the emergent themes and clusters. Once you're done, create a comprehensive master listing, a roll up of superordinate and subordinate themes for all the transcripts. So now let's say you did 10 individual transcripts. Now you have to roll up, in other words, you have to integrate into all that, that all the transcripts into this one sheet. Okay, you're gonna use this sheet and you're gonna name it as as the master listing of themes. In that you will list all the superordinate and subordinate themes from all the 10 interviews into this master listing, okay? And so just list them. So you may potentially find that you've listed as through the entire process of reduction, you may come up with, say, 15, uh, 20, 30, or maybe even less. Okay. You may have come up with, say, 18, 19 in this roll up. But are all 19 important from the standpoint of the research phenomena? That is for you to decide as an interpreter, it is for you to make sure that what you're not doing is repeating certain themes. So if some themes have been repeated, uh, you you can cluster them together into one. All right, so the end of the stage six process, what you have is a master listing of themes. And um, this is the data from which you will then start Your writing. Okay. Phenomenological writing. So, phenomenological writing is the final stage of analysis and interpretation. It constitutes nearly 60 to 70% of the task. A lot of people think of phenomenological writing as not as important as the data collection or the data um, um, analysis phases. But it is very, very critical nonetheless. And I want to make sure that you understand that in phenomenological writing, your task isn't complete if you haven't spent 60 to 70% of your time on the study, on writing the study. Given the ideographic focus of IPA, each participant's account is treated and written about on its own terms, own merits, with specificity and particularity in mind. IPA writing is about evocative descriptions and pathos-laden narratives. Pathos-laden meaning a lot of emotions, deep emotions, which add to its novelty. Interviews are referred to as cases in IPA. You can call them interview number one, two, three, four, so forth and so on, or you can call them case one, two, three, four. IPA generally uses the expression cases. In the analysis, the interview or the researcher first writes about each case. Providing supporting extracts from the actual interviews. At this point, the researcher is only making sense of what was obtained from the interviews without putting a theoretical or interpretative spin other than what is emerged in the data collection. After all the case narratives are individually written, the researcher then distills the data and creates a group narrative. At this stage of writing, the researcher can and must use her own interpretive framework and understanding to further make sense of what is transpired in the study if you want to go further deep dive reading uh, look for interpretive phenomenology analysis it's a wonderful book it's almost like the bible of ipa written by its founders smith flowers and larkin at the university of birkbeck in uk you can look for Phenomenology of Practice, a wonderful book, but a Little Dance for the Novice Researcher by Max Van Manen. Or if you want a more rudimentary text, you can start looking at Researching Lived Experience, also by Max Van Manen. Um, I know that I've rushed through a lot of material. Unfortunately, uh, given the complexity of IPA, Um, it wasn't possible for me to cover this in a short session. I wanted to stay within the time boundary. I hope you've enjoyed the session. If you'd like um, to to receive a copy of this PowerPoint, uh, please feel free to email me. Um, You can reach me um, at orgdyne at gmail.com or abehal, A-B-E-H-A-L at email.fielding.edu. Uh, that's the Institute I graduated from, Fielding Graduate Institute. Um, so with that, I wanna thank you for this. Uh, again, it was a little unnatural for me to do a one-to-many session. All my sessions are typically very interactive with a number of participants and cross-pollination of ideas. But I hope you've gleaned something from this. Um, and with that, I wish you a lot of luck. I ho- hope you uh, seriously think of using IPA in your, uh, in your research study. Um, and uh, of course, that is if your research question is, 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 is the kind of question that can be answered uh, by deploying IPA. So goodbye and good luck to you all. Thanks.